entertainment industry was shocked by the death of Matthew Perry at age 54. And Perry, who starred as Chandler and Friends, actually grew up here in Ottawa, nearby, about five minutes from here. Some quotes I just read from his memoir were, that were recently posted, and they blew me away, to be honest. He recalled praying to God, begging him, God, you can do whatever you want with me, just please make me famous. And three weeks later, in fact, he got cast in Friends. So, he believed that God kept his side of the bargain, but that God also didn't forget the first part of his prayer, that you can do whatever you want with me. So he mused, now, all these years later, I'm certain that I got famous, so I would not waste my entire life trying to get famous. You have to get famous to know that it's not the answer. He found that, that fame and notoriety didn't fix anything about his broken world, saying, I am constantly filled with a lurking loneliness, a yearning, clinging to the notion that something outside of me will fix me. But I'd had all that the outside had to offer. I was a kid from Canada who had all his dreams come true. They were just the wrong dreams. And in all this, Matthew Perry reminded me of the guy we met at the end of Ecclesiastes 4 last week, who went from a nobody to a capital S somebody, from poverty to royalty. But when he reached the upper echelons of society, he, was, he felt abandoned there. We need something more than just people power, success, wealth, or fame. And time and time again, people who seemingly achieve it all in life testify to this truth. And Perry thought, I want that connection to, to something bigger than me because I'm convinced it's the only thing that will truly save my life. I don't want to die. I'm scared to die. He was scared to die, so... He actually sought escape from his discomfort in drugs and booze. But he eventually realized that he was really seeking God, admitting, I never let myself feel uncomfortable long enough to have a spiritual connection, so I fix it with pills and alcohol before God can jump in and fix me. He then prayed, there has to be more. There has to be more, God. I seek the answer every day. I am a seeker. I seek God. I pray he found him. Because I'm convinced that that really is the only answer. Amen. Seeking and finding God. Now in Ecclesiastes, I find it interesting that, that Solomon follows like the same pattern as Perry here. He, going from talking about the emptiness of achieving it all to talking about seeking God. Solomon focuses here on seeking God as we approach him to worship. And that's no coincidence, because everything else in this fallen world falls short of satisfying us, so we need the Lord who is worthy of our worship. But then we need to ask, 
How are we supposed to approach the Lord in that man? In what manner should we approach him? I mean, you prepare yourself for going to work, for going to school, for going grocery shopping, for going to a friend's home for a meal, for going to the gym, making sure that you have everything you need for each event or each errand before you leave the house. But do we prepare ourselves for going to worship our almighty and holy God? Ecclesiastes is going to encourage us to do this today, to be very intentional about our worship. So if you would, let's open up together to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 now. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we provide some in the seats there for you. Ecclesiastes 5, and it's a very easy page number, 555, (laughs) to find where we're going today. Believe it or not, this is the first chapter in Ecclesiastes with imperatives or commands in it. It's like... Other lessons can be learned by simple observation and examination, but worship is so important that it requires some clear commands. And the first we're going to see right away in verse 1, where it says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Like, watch your step when you go to God's house. Why? Were there tripping hazards at the temple, steps going up or down or uneven that we might miss. No, this is talking about our, isn't talking about our literal physical steps, but instead our conduct in general. It's more like watch how you act as you enter the house of God. Now, God was and is omnipresent everywhere. Of course, we believe this, but he revealed his presence and his glory in a special way at the temple, and the temple was the center of Israel's worship. It was the destination of regular pilgrimages, the the location of priests and altars and sacrifices. The temple was really where Jews approached God. And so, the main truth that this passage teaches us, I believe, is simply this, that we must approach God carefully. We must approach God carefully. Guard your steps. Be careful how you tread before God. A question. Who built the most glorious temple Jerusalem ever saw? Solomon did. So Solomon knew well all about the the temple's significance, its spectacular beauty. Everything about the temple was designed, it was meant to to stir people's hearts to worship. It was majestic in order to draw, to demonstrate the majesty of God, his bigness, our smallness. But but Solomon also knew what we might call the, the ordinariness of the temple, like He oversaw its construction from the first cornerstone until the final decoration. So he knew that it was all made from natural materials. We can find anywhere on earth. Stone, cedar, fabric, gold, etc. And did these building materials have magical or sacred properties? No. See, it wasn't the location nor the physical makeup of the temple that made it special, but the inhabitant 
or the resident of the temple. Without him, it was just another building. And so, so people didn't need to approach carefully because of the, the breathtaking architecture. They needed to approach carefully because they were approaching the Lord Almighty. Now, God's truest home is in heaven, outside of our physical universe. But the temple was his own specially chosen house for his presence on earth at this time. Imagine being invited to the house of someone famous or powerful today. Right? You might picture your favorite musician or an athlete or a movie star. Okay, so just, just get that picture in your head. Picture someone who you'd be impressed by, you look up to maybe. How carefully would you think about how you would enter their home? Would you consider what you'd wear? Would you, what you'd bring so you don't come empty-handed? What you'd say to them when you saw them? How you'd act around them? How much more carefully and thoughtfully should we approach entering God's house? Now, of course, we don't have a physical temple anymore. But why is that? Well, it's because Jesus, our great high priest, perfectly obeyed the whole law, then offered himself as the sacrifice to end all physical sacrifices, fulfilling Israel's system of worship, tearing the curtain in the temple in two, and saying that, that true worshipers can worship God anywhere, in spirit and in truth. Then he sent his spirit to dwell within all people who believe in him which means that we, as God's people, are the temple now. 2 Corinthians 6 puts it really plainly. It says, for we are the temple of the living God. And 1 Peter 2.5 says, we, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So then, you may wonder, well, if we're the temple of God, does that mean that we're constantly going to the house of God, and thus we need to guard our steps 24-7 now? Well, yes and no. Yes, we should always be watching the way we're walking because God is with us. Ephesians 5.15 tells us, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So watch your step. But at the same time, I'd say, no, I don't believe that going to the house of God translates to any action, anytime, 24-7. I believe this is specifically referring to the act of approaching God in worship. And I've defined worship before as coming before God into his presence, responding to him, to his, to his person and, to his, and his works, in order to glorify him. Which we, the main way we do this is when we gather together regularly as the church to pray, sing, read the word, hear the word, and partake of communion together. And so, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, most especially applies to worship gatherings of God's people. And if we have to guard our steps when going to worship, it implies that there are right and wrong ways to approach God. There are wise and foolish ways 
to worship, which is why we must be careful. Notice one other important thing here. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, not if you go, but when you go, which means that this is written for people who do go to worship, temple goers, okay, believers already. Today, regular church-going folks, it's, it's for people like you and me, right, whose minds wander as we pray or sing, who show up, yet so easily come up with excuses for not engaging on a deeper level, whose intentions are probably perfectly fine, but our follow-through isn't. So, if we must approach God carefully, what does that actually look like for us? I believe this passage in Ecclesiastes is going to give us two clear answers to that question, which still very much apply to us today as the living temple of the Holy Spirit. The first is this. We must, must approach God carefully, so speak less, listen more. How do we guard our steps in worship? First of all, speak less, listen more. We'll read the first few verses. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. You can just say, ears open, mouth shut. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. At the temple in Solomon's day, the, the priests would read and teach the law to people who came. And, and when we gather as the temple today, we too seek to hear from God's word. This is why we, we try to fill our songs with truth, why we read scripture together, why we preach the word. Thus, the exhortation to listen still very much applies to us. Are we listening to God's voice? I really don't want to ever just get up here and spout off my own thoughts or opinions. It's not going to be worth your while anyway. But you don't gather to hear from me, or at least you shouldn't. We gather, we come together in worship to hear and respond to God. And that's worth it every time. And if every word of Scripture is breathed out by him, means he actually speaks to us through it. Like, don't ever stop being astounded by the fact that God speaks to us. Even now. So as you come to church, ask yourself, am I ready to draw near to listen? Because drawing near implies an intentionality, right? A leaning in to listen, a careful listening. However, we think, well, what about when I don't hear him speaking? Or 
when my attention is divided. After all, we are easily distracted by the voices around us in our world clamoring for our attention. The first thing I think we must do here is, is we have to remember what we're actually doing as we worship. We're approaching the king of the universe. And then Ecclesiastes gives us this wise advice, listen anyway. Listen anyway. Draw near. Pay attention. God gathers us together, and he's speaking whether we hear him or not. And we should doubt our own perception before we doubt his speaking. After all, we're the ones all complicated and mixed up here under the sun. Not him. David Gibson encourages us that the ear is the Christian's primary sense organ. Listening to what God has said is our main spiritual discipline. We need someone to tell us to listen because we want to look and speak more than we want to listen. The things we see and the things we can touch dominate the way we perceive reality. We are fundamentally active creatures. We are what we do. But Ecclesiastes says that we become more human when we are what we receive. Life is a gift, and God's word is the most precious of gifts, to be honored and loved and treasured above all others. So we seek to receive his gift. And choose to trust the truth of God's word even when we don't easily hear him speaking. Like he's, he's, all, we're all, he's already, if you are hearing the word of God, the scripture spoken, you are hearing God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. That a sacrifice of fools is talking about offering sacrifices mindlessly or carelessly which it says is evil. But the fool doesn't even realize they're doing evil. Now, we do, again, we don't make physical sacrifices anymore. But we do make spiritual sacrifices. We make sacrifices of praise, as the New Testament calls it, all the time. And that, that, it's the, that runs the risk of being careless or casual as well. Let me ask you this. Do you do anything to prepare your heart to worship God at church? To make it intentional, not careless. This could include things like getting to bed at a decent hour on Saturday night. Or consuming less sugar or caffeine so you don't crash. Or maybe more caffeine if you need it. Or making it a habit to, to show up early, not late. Or leaving our phones at home could also find out what's being preached on and meditate on the passage beforehand or take a few minutes before and just focus on prayer, asking God to speak to you, to your heart today. And I know it can be really hard sometimes to show up in a mindset of worship. Really hard. I've got six kids. Sunday mornings can often leave us all frazzled. But are we working to identify hindrances and seeking to address them? Like that's being mindful, thoughtful, careful about how you approach God to worship him. 
And then when you're in worship, are you guarding your steps there with care as well? Are you fully participating or are you more of a spectator? Are you singing, praying? Does your physical posture truly reflect your heart? Or are you treating worship more like it's a casual activity that that may or may not be fun to be at? Like you could take it or leave it, hands in your pockets, mind on a game or a show, but for whatever reason you're here, going through the motions. I'm not really trying to step on your toes here. I'm just trying to get you to think. How am I approaching God in worship? Am I being frivolous or reverent? God cares most about our hearts. So just where is your heart? And kids who are here, this is partly why your parents teach you to treat church as a serious activity. Like worship should be filled with joy, absolutely, but not silliness or goofiness. Like there's a time and place to be silly, but being before God in worship is not it. In 1 Samuel 15.22, Samuel warned King Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey, or literally to listen, is better than sacrifice. And it's the same contrast here in Ecclesiastes in verse 1 between offering foolish sacrifices and drawing near to listen. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. But think about it. Why would a fool go to the temple at all? Because he wants something, right? So what would he do to try to get what he wants? Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. He would say whatever he thinks God would want to hear, impulsively piling up words, searching for the right magic words, you could say, bargaining with God, bartering, making promises. But Jesus comes along and tells us, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And God doesn't really care how many words you say. He cares about your heart. Someone once said that when we pray, we imagine it's like we're talking into a telephone or a microphone with God listening in on headphones on the other end, when really it's more like God is listening to our hearts with a spiritual stethoscope. That's how he's listening to us, hearing our deepest desires, our motivations, our aspirations, like he hears what we really mean. And God does want to hear our hearts. He encourages us to, to pour out our hearts before him. He commands us to pray and to sing to him. So this isn't saying to not do that. It's more check your motives and ask why you're doing what you're doing. Are you saying and praying many things because you believe that that's what will make God hear you? Or that's what's going to persuade him to forgive you? Or maybe put him in your debt? He's already inclined to love us. 
He doesn't want us bargaining for his grace. There is zero need to be rash or hasty with what we ask of God or promise him. It's, that would be like treating God like he's a merchant that we're trying to barter with. Or even a genie that we can try to manipulate. But is that who God is? Not in the least. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, God's in charge, not us. We're under the sun. He's over the sun. This verse really puts us in our rightful place. As Philip Ryken says, the God we worship, or pretend to worship, is the sovereign and mighty God who rules the entire universe. Meanwhile, we are not that. We're on earth. We're limited, mortal, fallen beings. Also, if God is the God of heaven, don't you think that he already sees and knows you? Indeed, he does, as Jesus said. Do not be like them. That's faithless Gentiles who pile up many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Our God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. He doesn't need your multitudinous, pious, repetitive words. So let your words be few. Like you can worship him in sincerity and honesty and simplicity. That's all he's asking. So how can we trust that he'll care for us even without our many words? Well, because the God in heaven actually came down to earth as one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He fully experienced both the glory of heaven and the vanity of earth. And then he died for all of our sins, our hypocrisy, our sinful speech, our impure worship, in order to, to love us, forgive us, and to open the way back to God for us. The cross really is forever proof that God does care for us and that he wants us to draw near to him. So have you drawn near to him? Through Jesus. If not, I would plead with you to do so today. Listen to his word, acknowledge your need, and then receive his love and grace. And once we're following Christ, James 1.19 implores us, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Like we should aim for our speech to be like that all the time. How much greater should that impulse be in our worship? The most sacred of speech. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
And Solomon then finishes the paragraph with, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. To put that simply, just as lots of activity, busyness, overworking leads to restless sleep and troubled dreams, lots of words or over-talking leads to folly and shows us up as fools. So, how are we supposed to actually control our mouths and keep them from over-talking? That's a great question. It certainly is a challenge. It may even seem impossible. Like just read James 3 regarding the difficulty of controlling or taming our tongues. But at the same time, I believe the gospel is the answer to our speech problems. Not only forgiving us, but starting to transform us into the likeness of Christ. The Holy Spirit inside of us, can teach us and grow us in patience and goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are fruits of the Spirit. There is plenty of grace in Jesus to help us speak in ways that are pleasing to God. Like, why don't you take a second and just ask him for that grace right now in this moment. Ask him to grow it in you. The final few verses for today could be an example of speaking less. They're definitely a second way that we must approach God carefully. And I put the point this way. We must approach God carefully, speak truth, and follow through. When we speak to God, our words should be completely true, and we need to follow through. Verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. So if, if you don't follow through on a promise you made to God, it says you're a fool. God wants to take pleasure in us, delight in us, but he can't when we do this. So pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow, or not vow at all, than that you should vow and not pay. Now we ask, how does making vows relate to approaching God in worship? Well, the background to this is that for many of the idolatrous nations around Israel, worship of their idols involved making all kinds of vows and promises all the time. There was this transactional relationship with them. They, they tried to manipulate their gods to get them to do what they wanted, to negotiate with them. And Israel was susceptible to treating the one true God in this way. But are Christians much better? Sadly, I doubt it. Like we think that we can convince God to do things our way if we just pray enough, or go to church enough, or offer Him enough things. Like enough! And we can't twist God's arm or obligate him to do anything that he doesn't want to do. He's not an idol. So we've got to stop treating him like one. Now, it's not inherently wrong to actually make promises to the Lord. In Deuteronomy 23, God allowed his people to make voluntary vows to him. Maybe you could say promising God that you're going to give him your best cow. Or something like that. 
But even as God gave permission to make a vow, he commanded them to not delay in fulfilling it. Just like here, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. It's a matter of honesty, integrity, and doing what you say. And Jesus actually expanded this principle to say that if at all possible, we shouldn't vow at all because our words should be so trustworthy that we don't need to swear to the honesty of them. So in short, vows are not required, they are permitted, and that they shouldn't be necessary. We feel like they are sometimes necessary. I swear, honestly, honest to God, no word of a lie. Because people are so often untruthful and untrustworthy. Welcome to life under the sun in a sin-saturated world. And we all know that, that lying is bad. But what if you cloak a lie with a promise of truth? It's even worse. And that's essentially what we do if we vow something but don't follow through. And what if we do that with God? Like, who hasn't at some point tried to bargain with God? Lord, if you'll, if you'll get me out of this predicament, I promise that I'll become a missionary overseas. <laughs> or, God, if you'll make that girl fall in love with me. I will never miss a church service ever again. Amen. <laughs> Maybe it happened for you, I don't know. <laughs> but I think the point here is broader than just these, these promises or swearing. It applies to all of our words. In essence, when you tell God you'll do something, do it. Follow through on your commitments. Be honest even if it hurts, don't let your mouth make a sinner out of you. And that's what he says in verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Now see, in those days, apparently if you made a public vow at the temple, someone was assigned to check up on you and hold you accountable to it. So a messenger would show up and say, hey, you promise you're going to give your cow hasn't happened yet. What gives? <laughs> and if you go, oh man, that was a mistake. I can't afford that. Sorry, I need my cow. <laughs> Solomon says that's sinning. Your rash vow led you into it. Now, well, we don't have to worry today that some tithe police, you could say, will come knocking. We do need to fear the judgment of God on sin. Like, essentially, why risk provoking him? Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? You could also say here, stop playing games with God. Like, he's not to be trifled with. When God comes calling, we're not going to get by with a, sorry, I didn't mean it. A casual approach to God is downright dangerous. We must approach him carefully. 
And that includes being very careful with what we promise. Now listen, if we're in Christ, Jesus has borne the wrath of God on our behalf. So we don't need to fear that anymore if we are in Christ. But he will still discipline us. And that can be painful. That may even destroy something that we value. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And God's not too harsh here. He's holy. He's just. And that doesn't change after Jesus. The New Testament gives us plenty of warnings against hypocritical or untruthful speech or treating holy things lightly. Like God hates lip service. Don't just shrug that off. As Derek Kinder says so well, no amount of emphasis on grace can justify taking liberties with God for the very concept of grace demands gratitude and gratitude cannot be casual. Did you get that? No amount of emphasis on grace can justify taking liberties with God for the very concept of grace demands gratitude and gratitude cannot be casual. Ask yourself, Am I someone whose words are truthful, especially when speaking to God? Like part of growing in godliness is learning to follow through promptly on our words because that's what God does. So if we're becoming godly, we're becoming like God. He always faithfully follows through. And I don't know about if you have any outstanding vows to the Lord. Maybe a, a marriage vow that you haven't really been honoring. Maybe a commitment to serve in some way in which you've been slacking. Maybe a, a pledge to give a certain amount of money as the Lord provides. Whatever the case may be, just think, how might you take steps to follow through today? And as we approach God, Let's not forget that God doesn't need to approach us. He's already with us. He already sees everything. And yet, he miraculously loves us the same. And because he sees us, because he loves us, it shouldn't really matter whether or not other people see us or want us to keep our word. The God in heaven wants us to. And he wants us. And that's enough for us. This passage ends with one final thought in verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. What does this mean? Well, we see our only instance of vanity in this passage For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. That's likely speaking of idle daydreaming and lots of talking or hot air. Our many dreams and our many words might as well be nothing but air, vapor. But what's interesting here is that the theme of our passage has been worship. And worship 
connects us with the eternal God in heaven who is outside the curse and above the sun. Thus, worship is by definition not vanity. It's not fleeting or frustrating. It connects us with God. However, this verse now shows us that our worship is susceptible to vanity. It can easily fall into vanity when it's corrupted by our fallen world and our fallen words. So again, we've got to be careful. Like we live in a world where dreams are constantly increasing. How many times do you hear, follow your dreams? And where words growing many is an astronomical understatement. Like, we can't go or look anywhere without seeing or hearing words everywhere. Now, that's not all bad, but it does mean that there is more vanity than ever today. Where, where, where dreams increase, or when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Just because dreams and words are so pervasive doesn't make them permanent. They are fleeting, they're frustrating, they're vanity, just like the rest of our broken world. And yet, there is one who is permanent and unpolluted and is worthy of our worship. But God is the one you must fear. I'm going to leave you with one final point that I think is important to give you. You are not going to see it explicitly here in Ecclesiastes, but the rest of the Bible makes it clear. We must approach God carefully, absolutely, and yet we shouldn't be dissuaded or afraid to do so. That may sound funny, considering we just said, but God is the one you must fear. But I believe it's true. We must approach God carefully, and yet if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we must also approach God confidently. Even as we remain careful, we must now approach God confidently, with confidence. Like instead of trying to bend God's will to our own, or manipulating Him, or making rash vows, fear God. But God is the one you must fear. And a couple weeks ago, I told you that when you see that word fear here, don't picture cowering in terror before God, but rather picture joyful worship, reverent worship, holy awe before him. To be so utterly astounded by who he is and what he can do that we can't help but want to praise him, love him, and obey him. That's what it means by fearing God. And when we fear God, we will be ready to listen to his words instead of only blurting out our own. When we fear God, we will be very careful about what we say in all our dealings and speech, especially in our worship. And when we fear God, we will give him what he deserves, doing what we say we will do. And when we fear God, when we truly fear God, Ironically and amazingly, we will fear nothing else in life. I just marvel at the fact that we are invited and welcomed to come before God. That we get to approach Him. There's no way we filthy sinners have any right to approach a holy God. None. Period. And yet we do now. 
Jesus is the one who gives us access to the throne room of God, and he now beckons us to draw near at any time from any place. We don't need to worship in just the right way so that God will accept us. He already accepts us through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so we now have the privilege to worship him in the way he wants to be worshipped. We can, in fact, come before God far more freely now than Solomon ever experienced in his life. Because, listen to the word of God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. God is in heaven. We're on earth. Jesus blazed the trail to heaven for us. Since then we have this, let us hold fast our confession. And let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So come carefully and come confidently. Your words need not be abundant because his grace and mercy already are. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, may we worship you as you deserve. May we give you the honor, the praise, the thanks for all the blessings that you've poured out on us. We thank you that even though life is sometimes really hard and our world is full of vanity, that it can be well with our souls today. May we come to you, even in every moment, but right now in this moment, help us to approach you and receive the grace and the mercy that we need, and that you so abundantly promise us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.